said the pastor, ministry would be great if it wasn't for the people. They're so messy. I mean, seriously, if all I had to do was read and study and preach a sermon now and then, that would be great. Maybe I would become great. Maybe other people would hear about me and I could read more and write more and preach more now and then. That would be great. I could become greater. If it wasn't for the people, I could be the greatest. They are so messy. Said the Christian, walking with Jesus would be great if it wasn't for the people. They're so messy. I mean, seriously. If all I had to do was to pray and study and go to church, that would be great. Maybe I could become a great Christian. Maybe other people would see me and and I could pray more and study more and go to church more. That would be great. I could become a greater Christian if it wasn't for the people. I could be the greatest. They are so messy. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. And before we get to that lovely text of church discipline that we heard this morning, we're going to zoom out a little bit and take a wider view of what's going on in that passage with these messy people. When we read Matthew's account of the life of Christ, we learn that, that, that Jesus is ushering in a radical new kingdom. Jesus journeys through the gospel on his way to the cross, and we often hear these words from him. He says, the kingdom of God is like, and then he proceeds to tell a story or a parable. Most famously, the summary of the gospel of the kingdom of God is found in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. When we hear it, in fact, when the disciples heard it, when the people heard it, the words probably seemed odd or a little bit backward. I mean, seriously, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I don't think this is the kind of kingdom most were imagining. The Jewish people were oppressed by the Romans, and they were looking for a Messiah that would establish a kingdom that would free them from the oppression They had in mind a Messiah that would wield greatness and power. But Jesus shows them a radical kingdom where greatness is redefined. Just when we think the disciples are catching on, that they finally get it, after witnessing, even in this particular section in chapter 17, the glory of the transfiguration, the power of Jesus displayed in healing the boy, with epilepsy and repeatedly telling them that he's going to be killed, he's going to be on a cross, they say, or do something that demonstrates once again their inability to absorb this truth about this new kingdom. This is how we find them in Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. The disciples of Jesus come to him and ask, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? I don't think they were asking if they could be the king. They just wanted to know who was going to be first, first in line. 
who's going to be the elder, the leader. One of my four-year-old daughters, granddaughters, excuse me, she's not a four-year-old daughter. That would be really weird. So my four-year-old granddaughter's greatest joys is being the line leader in her preschool. Some of you are going, I still want to be the line leader, right? Somehow, I don't know how they do it. They earn stickers or whatever. How they get chosen, they earn that space. But to her, it's the greatest when, when she's the line leader. Well, I'm sure the disciples weren't jockeying. I think they were jockeying for something a bit more than this. But the spirit of the question is the same. Can I be first? Can I be in the front of the line? Well, Jesus, in echoing those teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, says, disciples, you're going the wrong direction. Your idea of greatness is still about you and your honor and your achievements and your works. Frankly, your pride. You see, the greatness in the kingdom of God is demonstrated by investing in something and someone greater than yourselves. It's not out of the messiness of life to become great and independent, but into it. So in chapter 18, verse 2, he says, if you want to be great, it's defined first by humility. He says, you've got to come like a child. Children in the first century Palestine had virtually no power, no status. Children lived in the margins and were dependent on the community for their survival. Jesus warns them in verse 3 that unless they turn from their sins, literally turn around from the direction that they're going, they will never see the kingdom, let alone be first in it. They are to become the most vulnerable or like them and live in the midst of the least of these. The next section of of chapter 18, verses 5 through 20, we don't go deeply into that. That's not our focus today, but the second is, there's humility, but the second is, it's defined by serving. It's not ruling in greatness over others, in that, just to be in the lead, but in consideration and service to others. It's contrary to our human nature to be this way, because all of us were bent in, born bent in on ourselves. No one taught you how to lie or to hide from truth, left to our own devices, For our own preservation and our own gain, we are naturally prone to marginalize others so that we can become a little greater. So when you turn around, Jesus invites them, you now live aware not of yourself, but you're aware of others, and you're helping them not to stumble. This humble serving continues in verse 12, serving by pursuing those who kind of get out of the line, who stray from the faith. Jesus illustrates this life of of a serving shepherd whose eyes are always turned around, always looking on behalf of others, and always went after the most vulnerable. It's hard to do that when you're facing forward and always leading. He invites us to turn. Well, much more can be said about all of those verses, but you get the idea that this is a whole theme of what's happening. The life of following Jesus, His greatness is defined by by embedding ourselves, embedding with humility and service into the life of our brothers and sisters. Maybe, Maybe anticipating an objection like, 
okay, we get that we are to humbly serve one another and go after those who might wander off the path. But what do we do when it gets personal or hurtful to the church? Then what? To which Jesus says, well, he doesn't really say this, but I'm glad you asked. Because he says, hey, if your brother sins against you, go tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, go tell him. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother back. You brought him back. Well, that was not right. Something's wrong with this, Jesus. This is something new. This is not what we were taught. What they knew was that the earliest Jewish practices included a formal reproof. You step out of line, you get slapped for it. You, were, you couldn't go to the table, the ritual meals. Couldn't have any fellowship with the church. Severe punishment was administered. You, you might remember Paul when he said in 2 Corinthians, he says, five times I received 39 lashes from the Jews because he'd gotten out of line. Five times he'd misbehaved. Jesus, Jesus ushers in a new way, a new kingdom way of thinking to correct brothers and sisters. He agrees that we need to go after those that are offending. This time, he says, but you need to lead with grace. Lead with grace. He, he suggests that we begin this process by, by taking someone aside that you're already in fellowship with. Something private, something personal, something gentle, humble, if you will. So they would have an opportunity to make matters right without facing shame, which was bound to come their way. Paul, who experienced this harshness, this Jewish practice, he's learned the way of Jesus. In Galatians 6.1, he says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in a trespass, you, you who are spiritual, still on the path, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. You know, in our culture, it's hard to confront people. Maybe particularly hard. We, we have so privatized our faith that we have shielded ourselves from any criticism and any correction. Because we have isolated our personal faith, when someone does muster up the courage to to come to me or to you, we, and they've somehow break through this force field that we've erected in our lives. We, we get defensive, rationalistic, downright mean. We say, who, who do you think you are? <laughs> You're judging me. Like, like you never mess up. Mind your own business. Yeah, it can be hard. You may not be received with open arms of, oh, thanks for confronting me. That's nice. Probably not going to happen. Greatness places us in the messiness of life, not running from it. This first step of reconciliation because of love requires an attitude of humility and of serving. But there are no guarantees. Because verse 16 cautions, he says, but if he doesn't listen, then you take 
one or two brother, others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now this rang a bell because this, was, this next step was taken right out of the Old Testament law handbook. The evidence of two or three witnesses follows the guideline in, in Deuteronomy 19.15, and it refers to taking witnesses that have seen the confrontation between you and this other person. They're not necessarily eyewitnesses of the original offense, but they know something's going on. And so they are neutral witnesses that serve somewhat like a jury. They come in and they hear your evidence and they hear their evidence. It's not like some cowboy posse that we get all the people on our side and we go riding up and we go convict them. They're neutral. It's not an intervention. Once the witnesses hear the evidence, then they make an assessment based on that. And when they do, those judgments are to be taken seriously in the community of faith. Practically speaking, this step takes additional and maybe even a more uh, robust, humble courage. It raises the possibility, you see, that, that you might be wrong, right? Because you, these aren't your buddies that are coming and ganging up. You might be wrong. Maybe the one that has sinned has not really sinned at all. Maybe you're just like overly sensitive. Maybe you don't have the whole story. It's often the case. We say that in our house. We don't know their story. We don't know what we don't know. We run to judgment. So bringing others along puts you at risk. In fact, this whole idea of shame may just backfire on you and you might become the object of shame because you were wrong. It certainly would be easier just to take that first step and then call it a day and not bring in the witnesses, right? Hey, I tried. If that's the way he wants to live, hey, let him go and just walk away. It's his life. Let him live it the way he wants. I'm going to go back and follow Jesus. I'm going to add the offender to my prayer list. I'm going to continue with my Bible study. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to work on my own greatness and not be like him. Now, the way, the kingdom is the messy way in the lives of others. And there is still a possibility that the offender will not turn back. What then? Well, if he refuses to listen to them, Jesus says, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, some of you with church experience are already bristling up. Maybe you went through one of these lovely times of church discipline or saw somebody try it and it completely failed. Maybe we haven't got it quite right. It's not really what we would imagine in our contemporary culture where we parade some offender in front of a church of hundreds or thousands and say, see, this is the sinner. Let's all point a finger at him. It's not what they're doing at all. It's bringing still in confidence to the church leadership. You know, a synagogue was established in a town with as few as 10 men. 
to be leaders of a synagogue and a church. It could just be the leaders of a church you bring in before. In other words, you're starting to gain credibility of the accusation. We're just not trying to kick somebody out. If he refuses, while excommunication may have been common in some eras of our church history, here Jesus invites them to something even more radical, even greater than they could have imagined. And it is consistent with the mission of Jesus. It's consistent with his beautiful work of incarnation. You see, Matthew includes something here that it's easy just to skip over because to us, it sounds and it rings in our ear, get him out of here. But we should pay attention because I think Matthew does. Jesus says, read it with, you can read along. He says, he is to be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, right? Well, who do you know that was a tax collector? Matthew. Matthew. Well, how did... How did Jesus meet Matthew? Or how did he treat Matthew? He went after him, right? He went after Matthew. Matthew from the tribe of Levi. He was a Jew. He was contracted by the Romans to collect taxes for his own people. He would have been labeled as a traitor and a thief, one who had walked away from his own people for personal gain. Where would Matthew be had Jesus not seen him the tax collector, and said, come, come, follow me. And what did Jesus say about Gentiles? Well, not closed off to the gospel. No, Jesus erases the cultural lines, and he opens the gospel to every nation. Matthew concludes the gospel, right? Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. See, this, this wasn't a phrase of excommunication. It was an invitation to go after, to go even deeper into the messiness of the world, to be redemptive in an incarnational way, just like Jesus. Therefore, Jesus says, verse 18, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, that is, whatever you forbid, shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose, that is, whatever you permit to happen, shall be loosed in heaven. We heard this phrase just a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 16, and I think Jesus might be reminding them to make practical application of a truth that he stated to Peter. What did he tell Peter back in chapter 16? He said, Peter, on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall what? Not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I think we tend to think of the kingdom of heaven as somewhere out there, some future big thing that if I do something here, eventually it's going to correct something out there. But a former pastor friend reminded us weekly during a multi-year, hear that, a multi-year journey through the book of Matthew. We heard this Sunday after Sunday after Sunday. He would say, the kingdom of God, right here, right now, the kingdom. If you'd talk to my boys today, we would say, what's the book of Matthew about? The kingdom of God, right here, right now, because they heard it, that the kingdom of God is 
we, we're living in the kingdom. It's an already but a not yet kingdom. We're shaping how we are becoming in this kingdom. As followers of Jesus, citizens of the kingdom of God, matters of personal holiness and purity like the future kingdom of his church, the bride, it really matters. There will come a day when the not yet part of God's kingdom will be realized. Until then, right here, right now, bind, that is, forbid sin to win. Bind it. Stop it. Go after it. Forbid sin to win. Forbid it. We are victors. How? Verse 19. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything, they ask it will be done for them by my Father. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. All right. First, let me say what I believe these verses are not specifically teaching. In the words of a famous theologian, Enigo Mentoya, I do not think that means what you think it means. These two verses should not in this setting be taken as a promise or a condition regarding prayer on which two or three believers agree. I've said it. I venture to say we've all said it. Hey, if we just, hey, where two or three are gathered, Jesus is going to be there like, like a magic genie, right? If we just do the right things, he's going to show up. It's not the condition of prayer. <laughs> Scripture is rich in promises about prayer. Don't get me wrong. This just doesn't happen to be one of them. So what is it? The two or three. Let's break it down just real quickly. I'm coming to the end. The plane is approaching the, the airport. Or two or three of you, who, who are the two or three? Anybody have a clue? Context. It's the two or three witnesses that were just sent out, right? It's the, those are the two or three that we're talking about. They've made a discerning, spirit-filled, biblically truthful determination about the offender and the offense. Remember, these witnesses went out from among us to help them and they went out as neutral, but when they agree, when they line up the offense with the truth and the promises of the Father, they will be heard by Him. We're not coercing God. We're aligning with God. And then we come to this word, agree. It's such a beautiful word. It's the word symphoneo. What does that sound like? Well, yeah, it's, I got that one. I don't even know Greek. Symphoneo, in harmony, playing the same song. The picture is like this. When, when individual instruments in an orchestra, they, they learn their part they, of the song. They, they come together. They, they sit in a room together. And they tune to the same concert A pitch. You know, the... And everybody starts tuning, and then they suddenly start to play. They follow the lead of the conductor. There is beautiful agreement. There's beautiful agreement because it's in harmony with the truth. Truth resonates in beauty. 
And then finally, in my name, I'm there in the midst. You see, the promise that this offers is this. You, we, we are part of something greater than ourselves. We are the church. We are the body of Christ. And when we do these kinds of things in the name, in, as ambassadors of Christ, he will be present. He'll be present in our going. He'll be present in the midst of our messiness. You see, agreement is not a condition for his presence. Agreement is evidence that he is present. It's not a condition for his presence. It is evidence that he is present among us. Well, unfortunately, maybe fortunately, this isn't the last time Jesus encounters this confusion about the kingdom of God and and the greatness. Just two chapters later, the mother of James and John, they come and they, they ask a very similar question. But Jesus called them together and he said this in response to that question. You know that the rulers in this world lorded over people and officials flaunt their authority over those under them. But among you, love this, but among you, you will be different. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be a servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must become your slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and give his life as a ransom for many. And so Jesus calls us followers of the way of Christ with an invitation to be different, to live in the messiness, to love one another deeply enough to pursue with humble and serving hearts. So what might that look like for you this week? To be a people marked by humility and serving, to get into the messiness of someone's life and lead with grace, to go after one who maybe has gone astray. Or maybe it's as simply simple as this for us this week. Maybe it's just acknowledging you're going the wrong way. And you hear Jesus today say, no, unless you turn around, take those steps toward your brother and sister, you'll not see the kingdom of God. The promise is, he will be in our midst. Let me pray for us. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of us look not only to our own interests, but the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, 
and being found in human form, he humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In whose name we pray, amen.